Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I want to talk about booze. Alcohol has played a huge role in my life and is responsible for some of its highs and a lot of its lows. I'm interested in what role it plays in other people's lives and how things like age, race, class, sex, religion, geography, profession, health conditions, family history, good old fashioned trial and error affect what they drink and why they drink it. I'm not here to preach to anyone. I'm certainly in no position to do that. I'm just looking for a better understanding of alcohol's role in Britain in 2019. This is The Drink. Please listen responsibly. Hello, Hannah here. Welcome to the second episode of The Drink. Thanks for listening last week if you did, and for your nice comments. You've got your rounds in early. Well done. It's currently January the 7th. I've not yet had a drink in 2019, although that is about to change. I'm pretty much putting my coat on now and going to have a bottle of wine with Ellie Gibson and Helen Thorne, a.k.a. the Scummy Mummies. I say a bottle of wine. I'm not actually sure what they're going to choose. They might well turn out to be big fans of Dubonnet. I've got a few more interviews lined up for the next few weeks if you want to listen out for them or, you know, subscribe. I'm having a gin and tonic with comedian Lou Comran. That'll be round mine. And the last time I had a drink with Lou, I woke up and she tidied the whole house that we were in. So fingers crossed. Then I'm going for a pint with comedian and parenting blogger Sam Avery. And I'm also going to the pub with comedian Evelyn Mock to find out what a Scandinavian makes of British drinking culture. So yeah, whatever the opposite of dry January is, looks like I'll be doing that for the next week. Did anyone hear me say I was going to make one of these every week for a year? What the fuck was I thinking? Anyway, on with this episode in which I talked to historian Greg Jenner about... Well, I won't waste your time. Just keep listening and you'll find out. I will, however, waste a few seconds to say when we were recording this, I managed to pour a jug of milk over the table, the floor and my coat. I cut it out because it was probably even less interesting than it sounds. I just wanted to reinforce that point I made last week about me being clumsy in preparation for the inevitable episode when I end up pressing record and it leads to me breaking my foot. And rest assured, when that happens, I will leave that in. Until next week. Hi, I'm here in a cafe in the BFI with historian and writer Greg Jenner. Thank you for joining me, Greg. Hello. We are having a nice cup of tea, which I am pleased to say because it occurred to me that if everyone picks booze on this, I'm going to end up with a really battered liver. You're not a drinker at all, are you? No, I'm a teetotaler. Since the age of? 19. That is really young Yeah. To stop drinking, isn't it? It is. And obviously, I think these days, if you say, I don't drink, people immediately go, oh, I'm sorry, what happened? Yeah. You know, they immediately think there must be some sort of story or, or you know, you, you suffer from alcoholism or, or there's something in the family I don't have any of that I just 
I don't know. I probably overindulged a little bit at university because I was trying to fit in, yeah. trying to make friends. You do the sort of slightly hedonistic thing of the first term where you, mm. you drink yourself under the table every night. It's, it's quite performative, isn't it? You're, yeah. You're, you're trying to make your friends. You're trying to sort of fit in. You're, you're feeling a bit anxious and nervous about who you are as a young person. And you're kind of going, well, if I just get drunk every night, it'd be great. And I just went, mm, going to stop. And I'm not entirely sure why I did that. I still can't entirely tell you why I don't drink. But I, as soon as I stopped, there wasn't a moment where I wanted to go back. Apart from at like 21, I got my heart broken and right at the end of university and suddenly was sort of drinking again. Not in a kind of self-destructive, like, oh, God, woe is me way, but just yeah. sort of in a, like a... Is this what you do, sort of way? Well, that was going to be my first question. What do you do when you're really angry? What do you do to celebrate? Because, yeah. you know, they, they're the two things that British people go, way booze. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I, you know, I'm a historian, and I've written about the history of alcohol, and I'm also really interested in the anthropology of alcohol consumption, the, the, the rules, the maxims, the, the traditions, and so on. And, of course, being a Brit, but actually I'm, I'm half French as well, so obviously the French are big drinkers. But um, in a sensible way, it seems. Well, no, more no, 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 they are, no, they are, oh, okay. they are, there's a, there's a real problem in France where they're moving towards, uh, amongst the young, they're moving towards a binge culture. That's, oh, really? And, and they've blamed the British for it, uh, which is fair. Um, oh, yeah, I mean. And, and they very much sort of, the French are kind of going, oh, what is this terrible uh, dilemma? <laughs> it's, it's the British, they have come, they have given us, you know, and. Um, <laughs> well, we need a decent export in well, Brexit. After so Brexit, all we can, yeah, you know. Your point about what do I do when I'm, you know, frustrated or when I'm trying to celebrate? Well, I guess I, I'm a really boring man in that I do not have the highs and lows that a lot of people do. I, I don't drink caffeine. You know, this this cup of tea I'm having right now is a very rare thing. It's a very cold day, and I've got a sore throat, um, and it's lemon and ginger. I am an insomniac. I am chronically weird in many many ways I do not need any kind of chemicals in my life to make things more complicated I drink water I very happily drink water and I'll have fruit juice if I'm celebrating and for me alcohol is is a, a complex thing that I don't need or don't want and so if I'm celebrating I'm really happy to celebrate with people I love and friends or whatever just drinking water it doesn't doesn't bother me I mean I I don't need that chemical release and I suppose there's a there's two reasons for that I guess on the one hand biochemically alcohol is a depressant but it's also a, a relaxant so yeah. you know some people obviously need to feel less stressed well I guess I don't maybe the other thing is that I did ballet as a child from the age, wow. of, from the age of five and you the, said you were boring from the <laughs> age of five to the age of 11 I did ballet and tap dancing or whatever so all of my embarrassments was already there as a child <laughs> so I can get on the dance floor and embarrass myself no problem because I'm used to being an idiot and I'm, yeah. used, to, I'm used to looking like a fool and I, I, I'm quite a shy person but I don't feel that need to be able to uh, the, the Dutch courage thing I don't yeah. need to sort of down five pints in order to go and talk to someone or to be able to have a good time because I've come to the pub or I've come to this thing to have a good time I don't need excuse and I guess in some ways it might be that somewhere along the line I've somehow liberated myself from the terror of the thing or maybe I'm just weird and I don't know what it is well also at 19 years old you liberated yourself from the thing that almost all the teenagers and people in their 20s have which is that the only way you generally have sex is because you've got this to <laughs> someone at a bar yeah. so there is another way maybe clearly. that I mean uh, yeah I know uh, God I am no 
I, I am a very poor case study for the sort of the, <laughs> the, the sort of you know the, the seductive. I, I've never been on a date in my life, not Me once. Neither. So I, you know, I, I've I've only dated women who are friends, and then I married a friend. Yeah, you know, I, I'm I'm a te- I'm, you know I have no seduction skills at all. I am not a flirt. I've never been chatted up. I've never chatted anyone up. Yeah. So I, I guess I've never had to sort of be able to sort of barrel into a club and download the shots and then go, hey, what are you doing? I I don't have any lines. I don't have any of that. Yeah. I. I guess for me, university was quite scary because I was a really shy person, but I sort of hid it a bit. I had blue hair and, and nail varnish and, you know, I was sort of into heavy metal and emo and punk and all that. And I guess I turned up at university and for the first term or so, alcohol was my, was my social lubricant. It was my way of matching other people, of fitting in, of taking part in the kind of rituals of... We're young, we're yeah. here at university, this is what we do, we get slaughtered, whee! Because I, what was interesting is that I also realised that friendship formations at university are really, really intense. They're really intense. The first sort of two, three weeks, you make these, these friendships that are like, we are like, you know, us versus the world. And it's based purely on the fact that you've either been stuck next to each other in the halls of residence it's just pure chance or you've blundered into someone on your course and you've gone well this person seems fine and you suddenly decide that this is the person I'm going to spend the next three four years hanging out with every night in the pub and it's just sort of arbitrary and but you make it work and you make it work with alcohol you you kind of you know you, you get yourself into a position where you're vulnerable where you get drunk together you share secrets and stories and then you've kind of got You've got ammunition against each other, uh, but you go out and you have adventures. You have you have drunken nights in the pub. You have mistakes and whatever, and breakups, etc. But along the way, alcohol is playing this really important role in helping you forge this really intense friendship with a bunch of strangers who you just happen to have been stuck next to. Yeah, and you wouldn't normally necessarily have picked them. They may not have been the kind of people you liked at school. They may not be the kind of people you would naturally gravitate towards in an office when you're 25. But they're there, and they're going to be your mates. And I threw myself into that. And I spent a lot of money on alcohol in the first term. Easily, sort of 800, 900 quid ah, on, see, that, just on beer. That was going to be my next question. If you don't drink alcohol, do you come away out of university debt-free? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, no, because, I mean, I, you know, I, I borrowed money to do my master's. So, no, I mean, I, I, I'm still paying off my student loan. I'm 36. But I spent easily... Close to a thousand pounds in three, four months. I had a tab at the student union bar where the barmaid Carol knew my name and knew my order within like two weeks, and that's probably quite worrying. Um, where did you go? York University, okay. which is a lovely university, but quite a small university. Yeah. So again, it adds to that kind of sense of you immediately have to make close friends because it's not like a huge, it's not like Leeds where you've got like forty thousand students milling around, and you can in York it's like it was like seven thousand students. So you kind of were like, right, this is us. We're, we are yeah. thick as thieves. And I was probably drinking seven or eight pints a night. And I, I didn't really drink much in my teens. Yeah, you know, a lot a of lot. people start really drinking young. That's another thing I didn't really do. I started drinking at 17 at a push, probably 18. Yeah, but your, your mum is French. Yeah. We were always told the French let yeah. their children drink wine at the, with dinner. That they was, do, that yeah. That happened in your house. In France, they sort of water it down so that from the, ch- from the age of like six or seven, you're drinking kind of wine in a responsible way, uh, but it's watered down. And that's a way of kind of demystifying it as a, as a power. So that, this is one of the interesting things about alcohol in, in Britain compared to France. Historically, uh, in Britain, alcohol is a liminal um, 
drink. It, we, we don't have an integrated culture. So in France, it's integrated. Uh, in Britain, we have a liminal culture. And that is to say that alcohol is this magical drink that can only be drunk at certain times, in certain occasions. And you can't drink before 5 p.m., otherwise you're a, you're a problem drinker. And in France, they have it at lunch. Well, that, that was one of the questions I was going to ask people in this, is what, what rules they've set mm-hmm. for themselves. Now, you know, as a child of an alcoholic, I have one rule, which is I never drink by myself. Okay, yeah. And which is why, when people come into my house, they go, God, you drink a lot. And I say, what, what makes you say that? They're like, because there's a lot of booze in your house. Yeah. like, no, that's an indication that I don't drink very much. Right. Because people buy it for me. And you store it. And, I, and it just goes onto the shelf. Yeah. And then I'm like, unless someone's around my house who also likes what I drink yeah. it doesn't get drunk sometimes for a year two years yeah. and it will sit there and then somebody buys me the same thing next Christmas so I do have that rule mm-hmm. but I do know other people you know not until the sun's over the yard arm at the very least yeah well, I, so that's a very British thing and you yeah. see you see in Australia you see it in America you see it in Canada so cultures with a traditional sort of Anglo Scandinavian culture I don't know what the word would be but but it's it's a form of of ritualised attitude towards alcohol as a sort of as a thing that can only be drunk within certain liminal windows and you can have it at 5pm and you can have it at funerals and and celebrations and you can have it at weddings and you can have you know but there are certain rules there are certain drinks there are certain times in France in Spain in Italy and so on you can have alcohol sort of whenever but you don't have too much and you have it with food as well you know the British we tend to drink alcohol for the sake of it and the Italians and French they tend to have it with food as an accompaniment so this is not a hard and fast rule everyone is different and France is changing so that's an interesting thing but from an anthropological point of view booze in British history has had more a kind of a, a magical power that's different from the way it's been treated in Europe for example so I didn't really ever have any kind of rule but I would only drink in the evenings when I was drinking and I'd drink with my mates never yeah. drank alone never one of the reasons I quit drinking I think was that I had a friend at university who I really liked a lovely guy and we're still in touch but he was a really warm kind fun bubbly person and then he would drink and he became really aggressive and it was scary for him and me because I didn't know him that well and I realised he clearly wasn't very happy and clearly he wasn't comfortable at university and he wasn't enjoying it and his way of coping was to drink gin during the day and I was like oh that's not great and and then just there came a point where he he realised and I'm glad he did because he's got a very happy life now and he's you know he's a nice guy and he's successful and you know great family but at that point he was on the verge of being an angry young man and I've I've known a few angry young men who went on to harm themselves um, and it was scary to be honest and so I think I was slightly shocked by it and I had you know a few other friends who got drunk and did quite sort of stupid things and my own stupid thing was that I'm fearless when I'm drunk and when I say fearless I don't mean in a sort of like I'm not aggressive or confrontational I'm a re- I, when I was a drunk I was a giggly happy drunk I was really fun to be with I'm very silly at the best of times. You know, I work in comedy on you know the show Horrible Histories. I yeah. I love being around funny people. I'm a very silly man. But when I was drunk, I would become I feel superhuman and I would throw myself things. I would I would I used to be very sporty in my youth. I used to be very sort of good at sprinting and hurdling and you know I could do backflips and stuff like that. I was I was good at 
being quite nimble and whatever, I would throw myself down the stairs. I would jump off stuff. I would, you know, climb on top of a building and try and leap off. And there's a video of me, I think in the first time of university, we'd been out to a club, I'd drunk all night, I'd danced, it'd been great. And then my mate had brought a camcorder and he said, I bet you can't hurdle that hedge. And I was like, of course I could hurdle the hedge. And, you know, there's, and the video still exists somewhere in his, you know, locker or whatever. It'd be an old cassette or whatever. But it's just me running really, really fast and then hurdling a hedge and then just vanishing. And there's no sound, there's nothing, because he's, you know, he's 50 metres behind me. And then gradually, you know, he sort of runs around to see what's happened. Oh, there's a really big drop at the other and side. There's a 12-foot drop. Oh, on... Do you know, a friend of mine at university did exactly the same thing. Yeah. Put his arms on a rail and went over yeah. and never came back, broke yeah. his ankles. Mm. So I was lucky. I didn't break anything, but I, I was not unconscious. Oh, my God. So I must have landed on my head or whatever. Uh, not in a serious way. Clearly, I halfway across. Did someone take you to hospital, or did they just? I do don't remember. Put you in bed. I do not remember. I don't have any recollection. <laughs> Probably just, they I, didn't take to hospital. If you can't remember it, my I, guess is. I've just seen the video. Oh God. So I don't know. I know that's the sort of thing I would do. I would, I would jump off things, throw myself down the stairs, hurdle things, all in the sort of spirit of like, way. Yeah. And and so I think that coupled with. You know, watching friends who are kind, warm, fun people become violent and aggressive and, and harsh was quite scary. And then I, I remember going to the doctor as well. Like, like you know, you, you get a cold in your first time university because yeah. everyone's there. And I went to the doctor and, and they just sort of said, oh, and, and just, what are you drinking? You know, what, how, many, how many units are you drinking or whatever? And I was like, well, this many. And they just looked at me and went, you'll be dead at 25 if you carry on. And, I mean, you know, I was drinking a stupid amount to fit in and I would have definitely slowed down because I was at university to get an education and I, in the first time I was like, way, and then I would have been a lot more calm and placid thereafter. But my units, it was seven or eight pints a night every night for ten weeks. It was massive units. That is you a know, lot. huge amount. So that was quite shocking. Was it, was it no bother to give up for you? No, really easy. Really? Yeah, just like I decided that afternoon. I mean, that, so you, you didn't have a problem. It, the problem no. was how you were using alcohol. I, was, than I alcohol. was using alcohol. It wasn't using me. Yeah. I, I, and I was in total control, but I was drinking alcohol to fit in, to be someone I wasn't, to sort of feel like I could be with the gang. And as soon as I was like, ah, I shall not enjoy this very much, and I don't really like what alcohol does to other people, it was it was much harder to give up Jaffa Cakes than it was alcohol. <laughs> I really like Jaffa Cakes. Um, and someone said, I bet you can't give up Jaffa Cakes. And I was like, oh, I bet I can. And yeah. it, that was genuinely tricky, because I'm a chocoholic, not an alcoholic. So giving up alcohol was hard. The hardest thing about giving up booze was my friends did not know how to talk to me anymore. Do you know, I read Frank Skinner's autobiography, or one of his autobiographies, he's done a few, mm. and he says something in it that's really quite heartbreaking, which is that it wasn't getting rich, it wasn't getting famous, it wasn't leaving Birmingham that separated him from the people that he grew up with. It was giving up alcohol. Right. That was what sort of othered him amongst people yeah. that he'd grown up with, and you think that's really... For it to drive a wedge, I don't know if it's different with men and women in that sense, because a lot of male bonding culture, yeah. like you say, happens yeah. around alcohol. Yeah, I don't know if it's easier for women. And I think it's easier now. Ten years ago, I'd say to people, I'm a teetotaler, and they'd look at me and go, what do you mean you're a teetotaler? What? I mean, I'm assuming you get a lot of questions. I realise the irony of asking that question. but I don't get them anymore. Okay. So I'm 36, and my friends obviously know so they're well aware and I guess when I go to work events and whenever people say do you want to drink I just say no I'm just going to have an orange juice I don't drink and I now people are going to go okay it's fine whatever and I hope that is because 
people are like, okay, you know, alcohol awareness, yada, 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 yeah. or they're much more sort of chilled with it, they're much more cool with it, or they're aware of, like, designated drivers. Maybe that's sort of an education outreach program that's had a sort of long trail yeah. and is, is changing attitudes. I also just think... I meet so many more young people now. I play football with quite a lot of people who are younger than me, and quite a lot of them don't drink. And I think it's because it's expensive, and because young people are increasingly pushed for cash and time. And well, the statistics you know, show that young people aren't drinking as much as, yeah. as yeah, yeah. the generation before them. No, m- millennials a, are, yeah, you know, their attitudes are changing. In. So I, I'm getting that question uh, much less than I used to. And I think maybe it's my age, I think maybe yeah. it's the fact that I'm often I go to events. Sort of, sort of in a professional guise, you know. Yeah. I turn up as as Greg Jenner, historian. But, but uh, yeah, when I first stopped drinking, my friends were really unable to work out how to deal with that, and I think they struggled to trust me. That is interesting. Now, uh, now a friend of mine who doesn't drink said to me, "When you tell someone you don't drink, yeah. after you've said that, everything they say afterwards isn't about you." It's about them. When they say, oh, was it because you were worried about your health? She's like, they're obviously thinking, oh, you know, that's what the worry is there. Oh, or is it worried about money or what, yeah, was yeah. It? something like that? So I, I, I suppose, as do you feel like, as someone who's teetotal, you have an overview that you don't have when you do drink? I don't know. Like you've removed yourself from... Because from, I notice you do have you do have opinions about alcohol. I've noticed, but you, yeah. you do always say, almost as a disclaimer, I am a teetotaler. Yeah, because do you feel like you're not entitled to an opinion if you're not a drinker? No, if you say, if you have ideas or opinions about alcohol policy, for example. So you know, I think I, I once wrote a short article about the uh, minimum pricing. I read that. Yeah. Just sort of saying minimum pricing is a relatively controversial idea amongst some people. I don't think it should be a controversial idea. I think there should be a minimum price on alcohol. Yeah. I'm not saying alcohol should be really expensive and beyond the, the affordability of the poor, because I think a lot of people really enjoy it, and for them it's like the one good thing they have in their life if they're doing it in moderation, you know, and I, yeah. I think, totally understand that. You know, for me, I enjoy chocolate, I enjoy movies, I enjoy music. If all those things became more expensive and I couldn't enjoy them as much, I'd be yeah. really annoyed. So I totally get it. If you want to go to the pub and have some drinks with your mates, great. I, I think I worry more about the fact that Sainsbury's might sell you know a bottle of vodka so cheap that it it, it becomes really easy to get absolutely plastered and I and obviously I'm worried about the NHS you know I'm I'm centre left I, I care about the NHS it's one of the most important things we have in our society and I'm, I'm really worried about the long term effect of alcohol but the, the primary problem actually is not young people boozing it's people in their 40s and 50s yeah. they are the people who are going to put the huge strain on the NHS and increasingly women yeah probably. exactly yeah. so so yeah as a teetotaler I have to caveat it and go I don't drink alcohol and here's what I think about alcohol and quite often people are going to go yeah but you don't drink alcohol and I try to I try to put it up front because I want people to understand that A I've opted out and B I'm interested also I'm a historian my job is to make, make sense of human culture that's yeah. what I do I mean, mostly 90% of my work is looking at dead people <laughs> but we historians can't help but look at the present and kind of go, oh, this feels familiar. We've seen this. This is a continuation of a long-held tradition. And the history of alcohol is incredibly powerful. Uh, I wrote a chapter in my book. My book's about the history of daily life. And there's a whole chapter in my book. Uh, I have about, read that too. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know if it's any good, but, uh, you know. I, I, no, I mean, I'm fascinated by alcohol. Yeah, so. I, I wrote this chapter about the history of alcohol and its place in our, our daily lives. 
Um, and it extends all the way back to the Bronze Age. And the fascinating thing that scholars have sort of come around to thinking about in the past five years or so is that the Neolithic Revolution in, in the, the end of the Stone Age, where we start to farm for the first time, the theory had always been that we started to farm crops in order to sort of produce bread, and that the byproducts of the bit that had been um, grain that could be turned into alcohol. And the new theory is the other way around, that humans had gone, let's make alcohol. Yeah. And then they went, oh, and I guess we could probably also do bread. <laughs> and you know, that sounds more likely. And that's such an interesting thing, because it, yeah. for so long we've assumed that, that humans absolutely would have prioritised food, because without food you, you starve. And now the evidence is suggesting, no, no, it's alcohol was probably the more important thing. Because alcohol is calorific, it yeah. gets you through the day, it's fun, it's, you, know, you can use it for religious ceremonies and ritual stuff. But actually it's, it's, a, it's a sugar, it's, it's, it's pleasurable, but it also gives you the calories. So it's, it's a good thing to grow. And you can bottle it, you can keep it long term, it's a very sensible thing to have. So we have extensive evidence of alcohol being drunk in the Bronze Age, five, six, seven thousand years ago. We know it's drunk in China, in a place called Xiaohu. We know it's drunk in, like, Iran. Um, we know beer is very ancient. You know, one of the oldest ever poems ever written is uh, a song about beer. In Asia, it's sort of rice wine. And in the Middle East and, and Europe or whatever, um, crop-based sort of uh, beers, barley beers and so on, ales, they're called ales. Like yeah. Beer has hops in it, so are, are really fundamental. And then in the sort of 15th, 16th, 17th century, you get the discovery of spirits, really. the word alcohol is an Arabic word and it means chemical supplements in Arabic and it was supplements sub- sublimate oh, so, it's, sublimate. so it's a form so it's a form in their understanding of alchemy so the understanding of it at the time is medical and it's magical and they believe that alcohol is a medicine and not, not just booze but spirits so it's known as aquavitae fifth element the quintessence which means the water of life and we know that people start prescribing really early form of whiskey called uskiba as a medicine for... I was going to say that's why your mum says when you got a cold like that's it. have a shot so, or something yeah. so one of the first ever treatments for the plague the bubonic plague was whiskey was alcohol a really primitive really rough nasty stuff because they thought it was the water of life they thought that because when you pickled fruit in it it lasted for ages and they were like this preserves fruit it probably preserves humans we don't know <laughs> so alcohol in alcohol been drunk as wine with the Romans and the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Jews beer had been drunk extensively in the Bronze Age in Egypt and Mesopotamia but in the 
15th and 16th, 17th century, there's a new type of alcohol that's much stronger, much more powerful, but it's imbued with a kind of magical potency of healing. And that's where you get a kind of a, a different kind of attitude to booze as well. And so Uskibar is the sort of first, and then you get juniper, which becomes gin. You get rum, which is a byproduct of the sugar industry in the Caribbean. And so rum is named after the word rumbullion, which means riot. It means chaos. Because when people, when people drink rum, they just trash stuff. They get, yeah. like, you know, they get trashed and the bar gets trashed. Yeah. Because it was drunk in huge quantities out in the Caribbean and so on. And gin, in the 18th century, you get this thing called the gin crisis, which is where gin becomes so cheap because Britain is manufacturing vast quantities of it. People were drinking it by the pint they were at <laughs> Huge amounts for a penny. And so it's known as Mother's Ruin. Um, you know, there's, there's sort of the Hogarth illustration, you know, of Gin, gin Lane and Beer Street. There's this sort of crisis of, of mega-powerful booze becoming available super cheap and flooding the market, and people are incapable of, of handling themselves. But it's also really interesting is that the spirits start to take on national identities. So gin was perceived to be foreign, was perceived to be um, a Dutch or a French import, and so therefore it was, it was a foreign muck, it was dangerous. Whereas beer was British, good old standing beer, and, and wine was quintessentially thought to be quite French, and, quite, you know, and the Romans didn't drink beer, they thought it was a barbarian drink. So we also see that alcohol throughout history has played important roles in defining who we are as a people, and what we drink tells us about who we are. So the Irish say, you know, they're Guinness drinkers and they're whiskey drinkers. And the French say they're wine drinkers and they drink Mijunapi or they drink uh, Calvados or something like that. And then you go further north and they're drinking Aquavit. And you go to Germany and they're, you know, big beer drinkers. And I was in Prague recently and it's just beer, beer, beer in Prague. In Russia it's vodka. Cultures have their own thing and their own spirit, their own drinks, their own rituals. And they express themselves through those habits and through those nationalised drinks almost and we live in a global culture where you can go out and you can get any kind of drink in the bar you know we're looking at, we're at the BFI here I can see the bar behind me they've got all sorts of, of beers and that's a that's a global thing we live yeah. in the 21st century you can get anything that you want but if you look at the history of alcohol it's about local production and it's also about the attitudes towards it and, and if you look at the Christian religion for example wine is a magical it's a yeah. magical drink it's the you know, it's, it's a metaphor for Jesus' blood. Talking of which, my, my, uh, I come from a Catholic family, yeah. Irish Catholic, and my grandma was not big into drink. In fact, this podcast is called The Drink because that's what my nan called it. Yeah. And it, that meant more than just alcohol. That meant the evils of yeah. the drink. So it was known as demon, uh, the demon drink yeah. in the 19th century. Yeah. And uh, she, well, she was okay with wine because that was, that was Jesus' blood. She was also okay with creme de menthe because apparently that's <laughs> what the Pope enjoyed. <laughs> but the rest of it... Right. Can I talk to you about prohibition? Prohibition yeah. with a little P and prohibition with, with a big, a big P. P. Yeah. Um, prohibition with a big P, I think, has to be. I mean, America's already the most interesting social experiment in the world. Yeah. Without them conducting yeah. I mean, the most you know, we just you know just the current the Trump world. disaster at the moment. You just you know. I mean, it taught it taught us a lot about human nature, but I think quite quite a lot of what people think about prohibition. The, the, I mean, the face of prohibition is Al Capone, and that's yeah. kind of loses something in the story if you just follow the what it tells us about organised crime rather than what it tells us because because I think if you look right early at the start one of my complete sort of heroes well probably my total hero in the world Eleanor Roosevelt yeah. was very pro-prohibition when you look at her family yeah. everyone died of alcoholism yeah. everyone so you 
I think there's something in Prohibition that I'm strangely drawn to, partly because it was a, largely a, we- a women-led movement. Yes, it's a feminist movement in many ways. But because yeah. they were making some really good points, which is that husbands were spending a lot of money yeah. in the pub, children were going hungry. And they were beating Domestic their wives. violence yeah. was huge. Yeah. So I kind of... They weren't... I mean, it was madness. It was madness, but I kind of... I know why they tried. Yeah. So there are two problems with Prohibition. The first is that it denies to people a pleasure. And, you know, I don't drink because I'm not particularly bothered, but I, you know, my family love alcohol as a pleasure. My friends love alcohol as a pleasure. And I'm really happy to sit in a pub with them and, and you know, and they can sit and get drunk all night and it, it doesn't bother me in the slightest. You know, I'm not one of those people who sits there tutting. But you, you will get stiffed on rounds, I'm imagining. I have to spend more on Coke than most people have to spend. Oh, really? I, I, it's so expensive drinking in pubs when you're not able to drink alcohol. It's really expensive. Yeah, actually, I suppose it is, because so, they always insist on giving you a massive thing of Coke. Yeah, and, it, and it's so sugary. By the end of the you feel like, bleh. But prohibition denies people a pleasure. So what it does is it immediately puts people's back up. They immediately go, hang on a minute. This, I, I mean, I deserve a, a, at least one drink. And it's also a somewhat hypocritical idea because in many ways the Prohibition movement was, was advocated by people who themselves drank. Yeah. So Prohibition with a small p as an idea tends to backfire. You know, when you, I think, you know, as we see with the war on drugs at the moment, which is a, a, a ludicrous concept. You can't have a war on, it, on an abstract noun. No. But the war on drugs has failed. It's failed yeah. time and again. And it's produced, I think, also overtly racist criminalising of, you know, certain people in American society, for yeah. example, you know, the war on drugs has, has overwhelmingly tarnished black communities, and here in Britain, I'm sure the war on drugs has had adverse effects in many other ways, but I, I tend to know more about America, weirdly. But the big P prohibition that came in is a fascinating case study, which I go into in my book, actually, because it was so interesting. It succeeds in some ways, and I think we forget this sometimes, so in... You know, it basically, prohibition comes in as the First World War is coming to an end. And yeah, so it's on. nearly, I think it's 100 years in at yeah. the end of next yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. The problem with prohibition with a big P is that it causes a huge crime wave, absolutely. It causes a black market. You, you get your Al Capones, you get your Gatsby's as well. You get your, your, your people who are making money on speakeasies. There's also a huge issue where law enforcement started to do behind behind closed doors deals with, with the runners and so on like that you know some of the cops were involved in selling booze and whatever there's also the hypocrisy that you were, uh, you were able to buy your wine from a pharmacy and you were able to buy communion wine if you were Catholic yeah. and then sell it you were also able to store so you weren't allowed to buy alcohol but you were allowed to keep alcohol so if you're rich you could just go and buy a huge vast amount and just stick it in your cellar so there was also a sort of a wealth issue the other thing that's quite interesting is that although you get the bootleggers who are producing very dangerous uh, kind of bathtub gin, you know, like the, the stuff that sends you blind, and it did, and it caused many traffic accidents where people were like, they went partially blind, they had terrible head- headaches and migraines, they were crashing their cars, they, were in, you know, they couldn't go to work. Yeah. It did cause that. On the flip side, casual drinkers stopped drinking. So what happened is that doctors realised very quickly there was a huge decrease in liver disease. So prohibition worked for some of the population in a really powerful way, but it caused a secondary crime wave and a massive economic crisis and a massive sociological crisis of trust and, and you know the powers to be and, and policing and the law enforcement and all that that became a much bigger story. But it did actually make 
millions of Americans healthier. And particularly, I think, in, in rural communities. Because right. it was in the cities that sort of a lot of that stuff was and, happening. But also, part of that it was enforced by the Ku Klux Klan. Oh. So the problem is, is that the, the, the KKK and other sort of racist organisations were some of the people who were enforcing this prohibition movement. So you also get a sense of coercion and violence being used to advance a cause that, on the face of it, is was initially proposed by yeah. feminists and by sort of, you know, progressive women yeah. in, in the 1870s and 1880s who were sort of saying, look, when our men go out and get drunk, they spend the family wage, they come home and beat up their kids and they, they come home and beat up their wives yeah. and they drop dead at 60. This is not okay. And these women are also very religious as well, you know. They're, yeah. they're, and, and so it's coming from a place of... Um, of temperance. It's like Carrie Nation, who I think has to be one of my favourite women in history. Right, who yeah. just, I mean, the balls on the yeah, really I mean, to just go into places and some, start smashing them there's up. Some there's some fascinating women, some really interesting um, people in that phase. And of course, also in Britain, you've, you've got the temperance movement also being going hand in hand with the Quakers, who kind of go, all right, well, we'll do chocolate instead. And that's my vice. My vice is chocolate instead yeah. of alcohol. But they... They are all about community, and they're like, all right, well, what, what can we do instead? You know, and so the Quakers go into to Bourneville and, and whatever. Are, they're trying to solve that problem of how do you have a social drink, a social pleasure that is less harmful, less destructive, less, less likely to, to harm the poor and women and so on. So my attitude towards like, minimum alcohol pricing is how do you find a sort of medium happy place? where prohibition clearly never works. Yeah. I, I am not in any way an advocate for prohibition. I just don't think it works. You know, Genghis Khan tried prohibition. Uh, and, well, if he can't... And he couldn't get it to work. And you're like, OK, well, if, if a guy who, like, killed 40 million people and, like, you know, conquered the no, half the known world, he can't do it. It just doesn't work. But uh, for me, minimum alcohol pricing is probably the only sensible medium place where you kind of go... Everyone wants to drink every now and then. Let them drink every now and then. But let's see if we can find an economic limiting factor that just stops them from drinking that seventh pint yeah. and maybe they have five you know and they go out for a night out with the lads and whatever and they they get a bit drunk and merry but they're not absolutely slaughtered and maybe then you just get a slightly fewer men going home and beating up their wives you get yeah. slightly fewer people stepping into the street and being hit by a taxi yeah. you get slightly fewer people going into A&E in 10 years time with cirrhosis yeah. so I, I I do not in any way want to stop people drinking Obviously, it's fascinating seeing millennials are starting to sort of stop drinking of their own accord. But my general thing is, how do we make it so that alcohol is a pleasure to be enjoyed, but it's less of a, an insidious sort of threat? I think part of that problem also is the pressure that we're meant to drink. We're meant to go out and we're meant to get. I spoke to Jonathan Ashworth about this. I mean, his dad was an alcoholic. And he's trying very hard to say things about labelling, about better awareness of what's going on. And he, uh, the whole way through the interview, he kept saying, oh, God, I sound like a Puritan, don't I? Because there is this kind of odd attitude yeah. you have that you are lecturing people. Yeah. And, and they don't like being told... Exactly. What, I don't want to lecture do. anyone. No. I mean, I, I, I do what you want. I, I don't care. You know, I, my only hope is that the NHS is still there in 10 years' time. Yeah. Please, oh for goodness sake. You know, I can't imagine a world without it. No. And I... I've known a few alcoholics in my time, some of whom have died, and I, I look at it as a disease that is, in many ways, helped along by the kind of culture we live in. And I think it perpetuates other sort of subtler 
things that also cause harm. I think it perpetuates toxic masculinity. Yeah. I'm a huge football fan. I love football. I'm a Spurs fan. But I'm a sort of middle-class guy who doesn't drink, which means that when I meet other football fans, every now and then they sort of look at me and kind of go, you're not a football fan because, you know, you, you don't drink. And you're, yeah. you're, you're a bit sort of... You're a bit posh for a football fan. And I'm like, well, I'm not posh. My dad's working class, you know. But yeah, I sound middle class. I am middle class. I'm a historian. And I'm not going to have a beer with you. But I'll have a lemonade with you. You can have a beer. I have no worries about that. But I do sometimes get a little bit of a sort of, you're not a lad. And you do you really care about my football team? And I think part of the problem is that there are aspects of, of masculinity that alcohol is implicitly tied yeah. into that and I yeah. think we know that from whenever England plays in the football yeah. and the, supposedly the stats tend to go up for domestic abuse oh. and I hope that's not true but I suspect it probably is a bit true Can I ask you one last question while yeah. I've got you your new book is about celebrity <laughs> Yeah, new is, is the uh, operative word because it's uh, not written The upcoming book <laughs> yeah. is about celebrity Next book, yeah and Now, when I think about female celebrities yeah. in particular or people like that I find very interesting Martha Cannery, Dorothy Parker, yeah. more recently Amy Winehouse. Yeah. They've all got problems with alcohol. Are you finding that a lot in your in the other people that you're looking into with celebrity? Is celebrity and booze weirdly linked? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, the first person who comes to mind is, is sort of my favourite person in the book is Edmund Keane, who was a sort of superstar celebrity 200 years ago in the time of Lord Byron and was a mega famous actor and was a sort of huge problem drunk. Like, he would go on stage, and one night he'd be great, and the next night he'd just be, like, chaotically drunk. And um, his life is really tragic in many ways, because he had huge talent, but you can see the alcohol just, like, really destroyed him and his, his relationships. I think one of the huge problems of being a celebrity is the pressure of being a celebrity. And I, when I started writing the book... I wasn't particularly on celebrity side. I was, you know, I've, I had no real particular interest in celebrity from a personal point of view. I just thought it was a really fascinating concept yeah. for me as a historian. I thought, well, I don't know much about this. I'd like to know more because celebrity is so important, and we all talk about yeah. it. As you know, with football, you know, when you go meet, if you go hang out with blokes after ten minutes, someone mentions the football because it's how we bond. When you go to the hairdressers or when you go, you know, to a bar, quite often the first thing people will open with is a kind of cold open. Is they'll kind of go, "Oh, did you, you know, have you have you heard about so and so's new?" You know, it's a sort of it's a thing that glues us together. Yeah. celebrity lives. I it's noticed a, both of us are struggling to come up with a name with a well, celebrity. I was sort of thinking you know, some Kardashian. I would Kardashian imagine. exactly yeah. is the obvious one, yeah. or you might sort of say Love Island or whatever. That those people become celebrities yeah. quite quickly. But the thing that I found fascinating when I started my research is I quite quickly realised being a celebrity is a really weird experience, really horrible experience that I would, I would hate to have. And one of the reasons it's super weird is that there's an enormous pressure, external pressure, to perform. And people think they know you and they expect things of you. Yeah. And they desire from you a kind of entertaining, exciting life. And you're meant to sort of live up to this. But of course, on the inside, you are still a human being, but you're kind of living your life in public and the public can be really hostile and aggressive and they can say horrible things to you on Twitter and they can be really, you know, um, I'm trying to think what is the name of the actress, Amanda Bynes. So she was a sort of Disney star, teenage, you know, classic kind of Britney Spears, um, Lindsay Lohan, whatever. And then she just went off the rails and had a kind of horrible Twitter meltdown where she just was saying stuff. And clearly she was having problems with drugs and alcohol and whatever. And she's now trying to rebuild her career. But she was sort of hounded and hectored on Twitter by people who clearly could see she was in trouble. 
but they were like, celebrity, don't care. And I think we've seen, with Amy Winehouse, a really tragic story. Yeah. A very talented, very interesting young woman who, by all accounts, was a charming person to know, a kind-hearted person who just had a destructive element to her, to her makeup or whatever, and maybe hung out with the wrong people, but was also struggling with the kind of... The, the pressure of being famous and there's that sort of amazing clip in the um, in the documentary that was made about her Amy where I think they, they pieced together sort of montage of of talk show hosts doing jokes at the beginning of an episode you know you know like the Graham Norton show yeah, and whatever oh, Jimmy Fallon whatever and they come out and kind of go oh joke about Amy Winehouse yeah. being a drunk and we do that all the time we do it all the time with celebrities we make an offhand joke about yeah. Gaza being a drunk oh bloody Gaza with his fishing rod yeah. oh god though Paul Gascoigne is one of the saddest yeah I'm a Spurs fan Paul Gascoigne was our great hero yeah. and now I look at him and go oh, are you alright Paul because I, I worry about him yeah. but we allow ourselves to laugh at these people as if they were funny entertaining characters in a TV show not real people who are on the verge of breakdowns alcohol is often part of that I think so many celebrities who have a breakdown alcohol and, and drugs are how they try and cope you know we see it all the time with rock stars all the time with people and comedians you know I, I know a lot of comedians I know a few musicians they get off stage you've got the high the buzz of form to a thousand people you're like whoa this is amazing you go back to your lonely hotel room and it's a weird come down and sometimes they go i I don't want to feel lonely anymore. I'm going to do the drugs, I'm going to do the drink. That would never appeal to me because I've never been that way. But some of these people slip into it very easily and it destroys them. The problem is, is that we are often the ones pushing them down that road as a public. And sometimes the alcohol comes easy and it comes cheap. And sometimes it's learned behaviour. Sometimes they may have a problem. Some people are more genetically predisposed you know, yeah. towards addiction than yeah. others. I think Russell Brand talks about the fact that he felt like he just was more driven towards addiction than someone else would be yeah some people just you know some people in a pub will play with their phone because they feel too awkward to stand there waiting for their friend and they don't want to look to be alone and some people are like that with alcohol they just drink because they just they're not comfortable being themselves yeah and as well it's a prop it it, it is a prop and as well there's also a sort of a level of of what you've sort of what, what is normalised around you. Yeah. Peer pressure, I think, is a, yeah. is a hugely powerful thing. And I think when we belong to a society and a culture, peer pressure becomes extended beyond your friendship group. It becomes yeah. normalised in who we are as, as Britons or as, as English people or as Welsh people or as Scottish people or Irish people. You know, we, there, there is a certain sort of acceptance of this is who we are, this is what we do. Yeah. And again, it becomes gendered. This is what men do. This is what women do. You know, I, I think there are all these pressures... My interest as a historian is in trying to understand why we do what we do and what those factors are. And I think it's often, it's often far more complicated than the simple answers we see given. And I've, in this, you know, just chatting to you, I'm, even now I'm finding myself going, well, that's an overly simplistic answer, Greg. Why are you yeah. saying that? That's such a simplified answer. It's much more nuanced than that. But the truth is, is that I don't, I don't know half the time. I'm not yeah. an expert in any of this. What I can tell you as a historian who's studied the history of alcohol is that alcohol has a deep, deep-rooted importance in our history. And I'll be surprised if it doesn't continue to do so. But what we're seeing with millennials is that what were long-standing traditions do seem to be changing a little bit. And it may well be that technology and culture and ideology will have an effect and that we might come to a phase in 30, 40 years' time where yeah. 
alcohol consumption is much less prominent in the same way we're seeing smoking start to die out. But we're not seeing the idea of smoking dying out. We're We're seeing people switch from smoking to vaping. And it may well be that alcohol continues to be drunk, but it will be some sort of pharmaceutically produced alcohol that produces no liver disease and no hangovers. It will it'll still do the same neurological thing. Yeah. You'll still get high and happy, but it will be manufactured by Pfizer and it will come with the sort of the delightful thing that you wake up in the morning feeling fresh as a daisy because your body will have metabolized it somehow and oh, it turns Jesus, the water. I hope so, yeah, and, I am and, the woman of, that cannot cope with a hangover. The weird thing for me, I suppose, is that I have never thought about that as, my, as a teetotaler. If someone said to me, in the same way that if someone said oh, we've invented a vegan beef burger and you went up to a vegan and said would you eat this they might go I don't know I've never eaten beef but this is ethical beef that's been produced in a lab and it's yeah. got nothing to do with a cow maybe, maybe I would eat it I don't know in the same way if you told me that there was a drug that sort of felt and tasted like beer but had none of the hangovers none of the sort of the, the fears that I have about yeah. losing control would I drink it I don't know to be honest that is actually the question America is sort of facing now with cannabis because they yeah, are much sure. further down the line than we are yeah. with that. Although cannabis oil now uh, yeah. on sale in um, Holland Barrett, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I've never touched drugs ever once. I've never held a cigarette. I stopped drinking at 19. Oh, Greg, you made some great life choices because... <laughs> but, or, or did I? I mean, maybe, well, you know, because maybe I... I would I've... imagine that if we were going to run to Waterloo train station from here, you would arrive a lot sooner sure. than I Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm fitter and healthier than a lot of guys my age. Yeah. I weigh nine and a half stone, and I've always weighed nine and a half stone. I mean, I'm underweight, technically. You know, I'm, I'm really skinny, but I, yeah, I play football, and I'm, I, you know, I'm pretty fit in that regard. And I definitely would have a bit of a belly on me if yeah. I'd been drinking. But I... I had friends who smoked dope, and that was no problem at all. Uh, the reason I didn't smoke dope is that my grandfather had mental health issues, and I was aware that it skipped a generation. And I was aware of that from the age of about 14, and I decided it, I would never risk it. Because as a historian, the only thing I care about is my brain, really. Yeah. Like if well, I, you, know, you don't need to test that hypothesis. No, but I'm, I'm, the, the yeah. thing that, that gives me more fear than anything else is dementia. You know, I'm, I'm scared of cancer, sure. I'm scared of, you know, falling down the stairs and becoming... Disabled, sure, absolutely. These are things we all, you know, it'd be really difficult to be deaf, it'd be really difficult to be blind suddenly. These are all things, but I know I'd be able to cope with those things. The thing that terrifies me is not being in control of my mind. The one thing I have going for me. So I have always, you know, with alcohol, with drugs, with any kind of mood-altering substance, I've been way more cautious than people around me. And I suppose I sometimes wonder, who would I have been if I'd gone down that route, yeah, where would I be now? Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 